You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My, a bi-weekly healthcare law podcast by Kroll and Mooring. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanabetti. And today we will be joined by Troy Barsky and Alice Hall Partika. We will be discussing constitutional challenges to the Affordable Care Act and potential wide-ranging impacts of those challenges. When we talk about the Affordable Care Act, we are often talking about just a few things. We're talking about the commercial market, particularly enrollee protections created by the Affordable Care Act and the marketplaces where they're sold. And we're talking about Medicaid expansion. But Troy, you've come into the studio today with a bit of a hot take that the ACA has a little more to it than that. Absolutely, Joe. What is not necessarily focused on by popular press, but what is focused on, especially by the healthcare industry, is the vast tools that Congress gave to the Department of Health and Human Services focusing on healthcare innovation and also giving significant tools combating fraud and abuse. And both of those issues have continued to be great focus both in the prior administration and the current administration, and the healthcare industry has taken advantage of those expanded laws. Now, the Affordable Care Act has been in peril seemingly throughout its existence, and now, of course, is no exception at all. Alice, can you give us a little bit of background on what went on in Texas in December and start to queue up a discussion about some of the impacts that that might have? So in December of last year, the Northern District of Texas, Judge O'Connor, determined that the Affordable Care Act was invalid based on a challenge brought in February 2018 by Republican attorneys generals and governors from 20 states led by Texas. The basis for this challenge related to the individual mandate, which is a piece of the ACA that requires that individuals pay a shared responsibility payment to the IRS if they do not maintain a minimum level of health insurance coverage. The plaintiff states brought this case following a change in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 that set the shared responsibility payment at zero dollars. The states argued that the individual mandate was unconstitutional because the federal government no longer received revenue from the mandate, and so couldn't be supported under Congress's taxing power. The states also went further to say that the mandate was essential to the ACA, and as such, if the mandate was unconstitutional, the whole ACA was invalid. So the decision by the Northern District of Texas found for the plaintiffs and determined that not only was the mandate unconstitutional, but that it was inseparable from the other provisions and the entire ACA needed to be struck down. So let me make sure I understand the change in statute was to zero out the shared responsibility payment. And the argument was that had the effect of neutralizing the individual mandate. And then from that, because the individual mandate was, according to the court, the linchpin of the entire law, it wasn't severable. So the entirety of the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional because of zeroing out the individual mandate. Is that right? That's correct. The Department of Justice, being the defendant in this case, actually did not defend the constitutionality of the mandate, although it did argue that some of the ACA protections should be maintained and that the mandate could be severed from them. However, some Democratic attorneys generals from several states led by California intervened and argued that the mandate remained constitutional, while the plaintiffs argued that it wasn't constitutional because it couldn't be supported under Congress's taxing power. They made the point that it could be supported under the Commerce Clause power. So what's the status on the appeal now? So in January, the Democratic states, attorneys generals, and the Department of Justice appealed to the Fifth Circuit. Since then, four additional states 
and the U.S. House of Representatives intervened to also defend the ACA. I mean, it's pending review by the Fifth Circuit. Right now, the ACA is still in effect, but in early July, three judges of the Fifth Circuit heard oral argument on the case, and the panel is expected to issue a decision this fall determining whether to uphold the district court's decision. And to uphold the district court's decision would be to say that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, and obviously there's no guarantee of certiorari from the Supreme Court, but pretty good bet that would follow, right? That's correct. I think there's a few different outcomes that the Fifth Circuit could come to. Initially, the Fifth Circuit has to determine whether the plaintiff states and the intervener defendant states and House of Representatives have standing. It's possible the Fifth Circuit would dismiss the case on standing grounds or determine that there isn't a case or controversy. Then if the Fifth Circuit does determine that it can decide on the case, the next question will be whether the individual mandate is constitutional. If it is constitutional, the ACA would be retained and that would overturn the district court's decision. If the Fifth Circuit decides that it's not constitutional, then the question would be whether it can be severable from other parts of the ACA. So what's at stake if the Fifth Circuit finds that it's unconstitutional? So as we stated previously, there are many provisions that could fall. But I think what has not garnered as much attention is the potential impact to these innovative payment programs and the significant fraud and abuse tools and provisions within the Affordable Care Act. And if those fall, they could have wide-ranging impacts across the entire healthcare industry that has not been discussed, evaluated by any of the courts, but would have broad-ranging and sweeping and immediate impacts across the healthcare industry. Can you give us an example of one of these innovative models? So the ACA authorized the federal government to test different models that would facilitate a shift to a value-based healthcare system in which payment would be connected to healthcare outcomes rather than the quantity of services provided. One type of model that the ACA contemplated and that has been the basis for a few of these initiatives is the Accountable Care Organization, or ACO. And this is a type of arrangement in which providers assume responsibility for a set group of patients and agree to share in the savings and often the losses associated with those individuals. The idea is premised on creating lower costs from increased care coordination and chronic disease management. So some of the current ACO programs, the Next Generation ACO model, and the Medicare Shared Savings Program have been shown to be effective in generating Medicare savings and providing high-quality health care. How effective? One of the first models that was used, the Pioneer ACO model that operated from 2012 to 2016, generated more than $384 million in Medicare savings in its first two years, which is an average about $300 per participating beneficiary per year. The next generation ACO model, which was the model that followed the Pioneer ACO model, In one of its performance years, it saved an average of $209 per beneficiary per year, which is a 1.7% decline in spending relative to what was anticipated for that population. So we're talking about pretty real money being saved under just this one particular innovative model. Presumably, if you took all the models together, we'd be talking about kind of a serious hit to the Medicare program in terms of its expenses if the Affordable Care Act were unconstitutional. That's correct. This is just one of the models that was developed under the ACA. 
The ACA actually created an innovation center within CMS that was tasked with testing models that would decrease costs while maintaining quality of care for individuals in government healthcare programs. So as of 2018, the Innovation Center had developed 36 payment and service delivery models, and over 26 million individuals had been impacted by them. So we're looking at several different initiatives that would lose statutory authorization if the ACA were struck down. So when we think about who's getting hit by or who would potentially be hit by a striking down of the Affordable Care Act, what would be the impact on providers if the ACA were ruled unconstitutional? Well, again, focused on the innovation programs specifically, there has been significant investment across the healthcare industry for all participants in these programs. As Alice mentioned, there's the accountable care organizations that have been created where you have hospitals that are participating, physicians that are participating. And what they have done is to create new networks, new arrangements, new contracts, new systems in order to participate in these programs. Without the statutory authorization that exists from the Affordable Care Act to support these programs, these models would immediately go away and the provider's investment will have been for naught because they no longer can participate in these programs. So we're talking about a pretty big rug being pulled from providers and well, from entities that have played ball, essentially, that have invested in these innovative models, and then the model disappears, and that investment isn't going back into their accounts. They will have gone out on a limb, and then the model disappears. That's right. And something even more significant, or maybe as significant, I should say, is that the Affordable Care Act in the Innovation Center authorizing language allowed the Department of Health and Human Services to waive specific Medicare and Medicaid laws that interfered with the success of these models. So for example, if there was a specific payment statute that mandated that payment work a certain way, but it was contrary to one of these models, the agency could simply waive those payment authorities and allow for something that had been illegal to now be legal. So if you take away this waiver authority, it raises a legitimate question as to if it has always been unconstitutional. One, has a provider been violating the law for the past few years? And even if the risk of enforcement would be low, now they have relied upon and built a system that relied upon a law that they didn't need to adhere to. And then immediately upon deeming that this law is unconstitutional, they would have to completely change their system again. So not only is it a wasted investment, but the amount of money that these health systems would need to invest to move back to the old law would create significant cost and burden on providers that's not being considered at all. So beyond this impact on waiver authority, would there be any other impact on providers? Sure. Focusing specifically on the waiver authority, we just mentioned that the waiver authority allows for waiving payment statutes. Well, it also allows for waiver of fraud and abuse laws, specifically the Stark Law, the Physician Self-Referral Law, the Anti-Kickback Statute, and the Civil Monetary Penalty Law, which focuses on beneficiary inducements. And critically, for the success of these innovative programs that Alice mentioned, many of these innovative programs require 
parties to coordinate with each other, to exchange money in exchange for good referrals. In the normal course of application of fraud and abuse laws, this integration, this coordination of care would actually be a violation of the Stark Law. It would be a violation of the anti-kickback statute. HHS was given the authority and has exercised that authority broadly to waive the fraud and abuse laws to allow for the success of innovative programs like ACOs and like bundled payment arrangements. So we talk a lot about the slow to adapt and arguably antiquated federal fraud and abuse laws. It sounds like we would sort of be winding back the clock, at least on the waiver front, for innovative payment models under the Affordable Care Act, where we'd be back into a world where clinically integrated networks are a danger to the participants in them. That's exactly right. Congress, in the passage of the Affordable Care Act, recognized that these programs could not be successful under existing antiquated fraud and abuse laws. And because of that, HHS was given that waiver authority, not only for payment statutes, but also for these fraud and abuse laws. We have seen many providers invest in new systems relying upon the waiver of serious laws like the Stark Law. If you violate that, all of your payments that are tainted by those referral arrangements would need to be paid back to the government. If you violate the anti-kickback statute, it could land you in jail because it's a criminal law. So these are obviously serious laws that have serious consequences if you fail to adhere to them. And providers have relied upon for a number of years now the fact that they would be protected from prosecution under these laws if they participated and relied upon these waivers and adhered to the waiver requirements. And that would now go away. And all of this distantly flowing from a law zeroing out the shared responsibility payment for the individual mandate. Exactly. It seems that there's complete disconnect from the individual mandate to these Medicare innovative programs that has had bipartisan support, really starting in the second Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and today through the Trump administration. These innovative programs have had significant support, and all of that would go away. The agency clearly does not have the authority without the grant in the Affordable Care Act to carry out many of these innovative programs. So beyond the waiver authority, what other fraud and abuse impacts would there be on providers? I think there are two in particular that I think are important to focus on. Beyond, you know, there were many tools like enhanced fines and specific tools given to the inspector general and law enforcement. But beyond that, there are two provisions in particular. One is called the 60-day rule, and another was the creation of the Stark Law self-disclosure protocol. Starting first with a 60-day rule, that provision specifically said that if you, as a provider, retain an overpayment beyond 60 days, when you know that that amount of money should be paid back to the government, not only do you violate the Medicare law, but you can be liable under the Federal False Claims Act for knowingly holding on to money that doesn't belong to you. While there has been a theory for some time under the Affordable Care Act known as reverse false claims, that holding on to money that you're not otherwise entitled to would subject you to liability, this specifically put in statute that if you held on to Medicare dollars beyond 60 days, that that in and of itself 
would be reason for violation of the False Claims Act. So we've actually seen enforcement action taken in a number of cases around the country where providers have been subject to this requirement where they haven't returned dollars within 60 days. They've held on to overpayments after they've identified them for a number of years, and law enforcement has taken action specifically because of that. And we're talking about in a False Claims Act situation, we're talking about returning not just the amounts that would be owed, but three times that. Is that right? That's correct. If you are violating the False Claims Act, you could be liable up to three times damages and also penalties as well, which could be significant if you think about a penalty for each individual false claim submitted to the Medicare program. So what this 60-day rule has done to the industry, uh, we've seen since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, is many more providers realizing because they don't want to be subject to the significant penalties under the False Claims Act, that they have gone back to Medicare contractors and are identifying and returning overpayments where before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, they might not otherwise have done. So while I'm not aware of any specific calculation for how much the 60-day rule has increased self-disclosure to the government, I would think, at least based on our own anecdotal information and how serious providers take this rule if they participate in Medicare, that the amount of money that's been gathered by the government has been enormous. And now removing this requirement, I think, would also cut off a significant flow of funds that the government has enjoyed since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. You also mentioned the Stark Self-Disclosure Protocol. Can you say a little more about that, please? Sure. So before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, there was no good pathway for a provider to come to CMS to say, we have violated the Stark Law and we want to pay back money. As I mentioned before, violation of the Stark Law involves a payment of every tainted claim back to the Medicare program. So if you think about a physician who may be referring to a hospital and how many referrals they make, and then how many claims a hospital will make to the Medicare program related to those tainted referrals, very quickly those damages end up in the millions to potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. And we've seen that through settlements with the government over time for Stark Law violations. But in many cases, a Stark Law being a technical statute where you could violate the law if you fail to sign a contract, the amount of damages is completely disproportionate to the actual nature of the violation. And so it really left providers in a difficult spot where they may be liable to the government for $100 million for failing to sign contracts. And so because they didn't want to deal with those ramifications, they would simply hold on to those potential overpayments and hope that no one ever found out about it. So if the Stark Self-Disclosure Protocol ceases to exist as a result of the Affordable Care Act being held unconstitutional, I guess that puts us back into a situation where providers are declining to make voluntary disclosures, or we assume declining to make voluntary disclosures, and it's almost like another stream of money to the government or savings to the government that, again, would be cut off. That's right. Historically, there were two other potential avenues to resolve these stark law overpayments. One was to go to the inspector general's office, but the inspector general had stated right before the Affordable Care Act passed that they did not believe under their own authority that they had the ability to settle purely stark law violations. So that pathway was cut off. 
Additionally, Department of Justice and especially U.S. attorneys' offices have broad authority to recover damages against the government, but failure to sign a contract really is not a very sexy case for a U.S. attorney's office. And while there have been some disclosures to U.S. attorney's offices over the years, generally they have had no appetite to want to entertain these cases. And it's always a risk that they're not going to understand the law and you might still need to pay hundreds of millions of dollars back. The last thing I'll say about the disclosure protocol that makes it so important and would be so damaging to the industry if it went away is that it gives explicit authority to HHS to settle for pennies on the dollar with regard to Stark Law violations. It gives HHS the ability to compromise those overpayments where it didn't have that authority before. So if there was a potential damages of $10 million for failure to sign a contract, it's possible, as we've seen from other settlements, that maybe you're going to settle for $50,000 as opposed to $10 million, which is more reasonable. The Stark Law is an important statute. Compliance is important, but failure to sign a contract probably should be in the somewhere range below 100000 as opposed to below $100 million. So it sounds like for a physician, the options in a non-self-disclosure world, the options are A, pay way more attention to clerical tasks that you're doing, which no one wants to do, or B, white knuckle it until the statute of limitations runs out and hope that the government doesn't find out about a potential Stark violation. I think that's right. And I think that's where we were before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. But note that the False Claims Act has a longer statute of limitations for violations of that statute. And potentially, depending on the circumstances, could be even up to 10 years after the conduct at issue. So you're waiting a while before you're in the free and clear. That's a lot of Pepsi over the course of 10 years that you're popping to deal with that. Exactly. Troy, among the couple of dozen models that the Innovation Center has come up with, I know a couple of them, especially recently, have dealt specifically with Medicare Advantage and possibly also Part D. Can you touch a little bit on the ways that the potential unconstitutionality of the Affordable Care Act would hit payers, particularly involved in those models? Absolutely. As you indicated, historically, for the first few years of the Innovation Center using the Affordable Care Act authority, there was a real focus on physicians and providers like hospitals and other care providers that directly touch patients. We see, especially in this administration, a real interest in expanding that authority focused on two areas. One is giving greater authority to Medicare Advantage plans to experiment with providing care to patients. And that experimentation would obviously go away, or the authority for experimentation would go away if that was no longer available. I think the other area that's quite interesting is with regard to drug pricing and drug reimbursement. And it's been a real focus of this administration, this Congress as well, to try to grapple with the question of both drug pricing and then also, I should say, the opioid epidemic. And using the Innovation Center and the Affordable Care Act Authority to create models to determine ways to reduce cost of pharmaceuticals and also to reduce the horrible impacts of the opioid epidemic across the United States. So removing that authority would cut off experimentation with regard to those specific programs that are now being explored 
and would push the obligation back on Congress to provide a pathway, something to date they haven't been able to agree upon the correct pathway forward. So it sounds like both the 60-day rule and the Stark Law self-disclosure provisions increase transparency of providers to the government. What kinds of impacts would the potential unconstitutionality of the ACA have on patients, both thinking about fraud and abuse and also innovation? Sure. The fraud and abuse laws were designed to stop overutilization, essentially, in a fee-for-service world where you're paying for volume. As we move to a world of innovation that is having providers paid based upon the value of their services, patients ultimately receive the benefit of that. They're getting better care. They're getting lower cost care. They're having improved health outcomes. So if you have these innovative programs go away, and also if waiver authority goes away and they need to comply with these fraud and abuse laws that are designed for a different kind of payment system, patients suffer. We talk to our clients all the time, whether they're hospitals, whether they're physicians, whether they're technology companies or payers. And they all say the same thing, which is moving to a value-based payment world will improve patients' lives. And removing these programs will directly and negatively impact patients. And what I fear is that while there's bipartisan support for a lot of these programs, as we know in Washington right now, if this law is struck down as unconstitutional, there's very little chance that Congress could get together and repass these Medicare provisions, these innovation provisions, these fraud and abuse provisions that both parties have determined are in the best interest of patients. Thanks, Troy and Alice, for recording with us today, for having a conversation with us today, and we will look forward to seeing what the Fifth Circuit does. Next time, join us for a discussion with Mike Lieberman about the proposals to end surprise medical bills. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.